All right. Well, <clears throat> thank you, those of you uh, who have come to hear about evil. I talked about demons, then I talked about demons, now we're talking about evil. So I don't know what short straws I'm drawing, but, uh, but there you go. Uh, we've been talking about this semester, we've been talking specifically about the doctrine of God, and we talked about who God is. We talked about His attributes and the fact that He's a trinity and these kind of things. Uh, and then we started talking about the fact that God is a creator. And so we talked about how He created, the fact that He created, that He created everything out of nothing. And nothing is not a stuff that He made everything out of. It's rather the absence of stuff. He just spoke it into being, uh, and it happened. Last week we talked about angels and demons, one of the uh, more interesting things that God has created. Today, we're going to be talking about God's providence, God's sovereignty. <clears throat> if I sound a little under the weather, it's because I am. That's not that my voice has finally hit that stage where I sound like a man. The guys make fun of me because my voice is not as low as my beard would suggest, but uh, I will do my best working through this uh, little, little cough, 40-degree weather change things that happens in Texas. So we're going to be talking about God's providence generally today. So two things we're going to talk about today that God controls everything. We're going to talk about His general providence. And then specifically, how does that relate to the problem of evil? When you say God controls everything, there's a whole lot of other things out there that are really bad. Does God control those? If so, how? How does God ordain or be sovereign over evil without Himself doing evil? That's what we're going to talk about today. Next week, we're going to talk about how does that relate with human free will, okay? When you talk about God's sovereignty and when you talk about God's providence, there are three main hang-ups, three big parts where people just freak out and don't really know what to do. The first is the problem of evil. If God is really sovereign, what do we do with evil? That's what we'll talk about today. The other is what does it mean for us to make real decisions, for us to really re be responsible as humans if God has ordained everything? If he shapes the king's heart like water in his hands, then how is the king responsible? So Jeff will talk about that next week, okay? So if you're like, man, I've got all these questions on how I really make decisions and whether or not I'm a robot, that's for Jeff, okay? Evil questions for me. Free will questions for Jeff. <clears throat> and then the third topic when, it ta when you talk about sovereignty that people are really interested in is what does that mean then when it comes to salvation? When we talk about what is called election, which is election unto God's predetermining plan to save people or reprobation, God's predetermining plan to condemn people. We're not going to touch on that this semester. Why? Because we're scared of it? No, we have two sermons on it, and we've already done a theological equipping on it, so those resources are available online. We will talk about it again if we talk about the doctrine of salvation on some future semester. So today, here's what you don't have to worry about. You just see all this? You feel that burden lifted off your shoulders as I erase these words? You don't have to worry about those today. This is the thing we'll have to worry about today, okay? So I'll just leave the word evil on the board behind me as I teach. That'll be awesome. Okay, definition. <clears throat> Let's talk about God's providence. What do we mean by that? This comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a pretty good definition here. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Let me read that again. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Now, anytime you talk about sovereignty, anytime you talk about providence, it's just a difficult doctrine for us. Not just as humans. I mean, the chief sin of man is really autonomy. It's that Adam wants to be his own God. He doesn't want to follow God. That's, a, that's something that resides in all of our hearts. So we just naturally as humans don't like this. But additionally, as Americans, this is a difficult doctrine for us. What do we value more than any other virtue as Americans? Freedom, right? Give me liberty or give me death means I would rather die than not be able to do what I want to do. 
Okay? I want to have the, the right to pursue happiness the way that I deem that it should be pursued. And so this is a difficult doctrine, not just for humanity, but specifically for Americans, because we don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told that even over our quote-unquote free actions, God is somehow sovereign. So this is difficult for us as we get into this topic, but I also think it's really, 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 really helpful. I think that all anxiety and all fear and all problems like that that we deal with on a daily basis come from disbelieving one of two things. We either disbelieve that God is sovereign, so we don't think he can actually control the situation and so we freak out, or we don't think that God is loving. Those are one of the two. When you, if you struggle with anxiety, fear, depression, any of that, you will find that there is a root that goes back to one of those two things. You either think God is loving, but you don't think he can actually fix anything, or you think he's really sovereign, but he's just not on your side. And so realizing this will, will be kind of a warm blanket to your soul if you can get what I'm saying today about God's sovereignty, okay? <clears throat> Additionally, one more word of pastoral encouragement. If you somehow, over the next two weeks, start to see God as somehow less loving or somehow less kind or somehow less merciful, you have misunderstood something that's been said. The problem is never with God, and the problem is never with God's Word. The problem is always with us, that we misperceive things. When I first started studying about God's sovereignty and election and Calvinism and all these kind of things, I realized I was studying it, and I started to feel like, wait a second, this makes me feel like God doesn't really love me. And at that moment, it hit me, I'm misunderstanding something. We know that God's good. We know that God's loving. We know that God hates evil. These things are very, very clear. So we have to keep those things in mind as we study this doctrine over the next two weeks so that we realize the problem is never with God. The problem is never with His Word. The problem is always with us, our sin, our misunderstanding, the fact that we don't like God to be that sovereign. When we think of God's sovereignty, we have a tendency to think of something like this. So uh, like Hulk Hogan is powerful. He's got a bunch of muscles. And like a tank is more powerful than Hulk Hogan. And then a nuclear bomb is more powerful than a tank. And then right there at the top is God. That's what we think of as sovereignty. He's just like the most powerful thing. We don't realize, no. According to the Bible, he controls every molecule in the ocean that sloshes around. He has ordained exactly where that molecule should go with everyone. Personally, he calls the stars by name. He directs all of our days, all of our action. He keeps our hearts beating. We don't like that level of meticulous sovereignty, but that's the kind of sovereignty the way that the Bible presents God as having, okay? So, what we're going to do is we're going to do a little pop quiz. You ready? I'm going to name something, and you tell me if God is sovereign over that thing, okay? Everyone should make a 100 on this, but let's just name some things, okay? Number one, is God sovereign over who is elected president? Yes, whether you like the candidate or not from the last, uh, last eight years or the current four years, whatever it is, he's sovereign over that. I remember doing a cohort at Southern Seminary, and I had a theology professor named Bruce Ware, and he walked into class, and this is how he started the class. He said, who did you vote for? He goes, it doesn't matter because I know who God voted for, and he also voted for Hitler. And that's how he started the class, okay? His whole point was to say, no matter who's in office, it's ordained by God. That doesn't mean that that person is making good decisions, Okay? God will hold leaders accountable for the bad decisions they make. The point is, though, is that it doesn't happen outside of God's sovereignty. Let me ask you another one. <clears throat> is God sovereign over whether or not you get some type of sickness? You get some type of cancer, you get some type of ailment, you get some type of disease. Is God sovereign over that? Is he just sovereign over the good stuff? Is he just sovereign over the neutral stuff? Or is he also sovereign over the bad stuff? Okay? Let me ask you another one. <clears throat> is God sovereign over who wins the Super Bowl? Yes, you have to say yeah. Listen, what we're talking about when we talk about God's sovereignty is not the difference between being reformed and not reformed. It's not the difference between being a Calvinist and Arminian. What we're talking about when we talk about the, the sovereignty of God is the difference between being a theist and being an atheist. If there is one atom 
outside of God's control, that could be the wrench that's thrown in God's machine of salvation that ruins everything, okay? If God made it, He is sovereign over it. And guess what He made? Everything that's made, okay? (laughs) All right. Let me ask another one. Is God sovereign over who you marry? Okay? So if you think, man, my spouse is just so difficult, you can fight with God about that, okay? God ordains who you marry. Let me ask this one. Is God sovereign over the devil? We have a tendency to think, yeah, God generally controls stuff, but it's really the devil that made somebody sick, or it's really the devil that made somebody do this, or something like that. And that's not true. Uh, When you roll a, 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 wait, we talked about this earlier this week with Tim, I can't remember. Is dice singular or plural? Dice is plural. When you roll a die, you don't say the dice is cast, you say the die is cast. When you roll a die, uh, is God sovereign over what number that lands on? Is there any such thing as random or chance or luck with God? Okay. Let me ask another one. This is the one that most people struggle with that Jeff will deal with next week. Is God sovereign even over the wills of men? Or is that one creation? So he's created all these things. Let, let me tell you the problem with this. <clears throat> Let's say you are afraid of flying on an airplane. I understand that fear. Airplanes are terrifying. Mankind was never made to fly. It's just a flying death trap. I get it. So <laughs> let's say you're terrified of flying an airplane. And you say that to Jeff Ashley. You say, Jeff Ashley, I hate flying because I'm terrified of airplanes. And he says, that's okay, Zach. You now see that it's me I'm really talking about. It's like when you say, I've got this friend that has this problem, and you're the friend. Okay, so when I say, well, Jeff Ashley, I'm terrified to fly in an airplane. And he says, Zach, that's okay. If God wants to keep that plane in the air, he can keep it in the air. If God's not sovereign over the wills of men, and that pilot wants to crash that plane and commit suicide and kill everybody, can God actually keep that plane in the air? Not if he's not sovereign over the wills of men. You see, if God is not sovereign over everything, then he's not sovereign over quite a bit. If he's not really sovereign over also the wills of men, he's not really deciding who gets elected and who's voted for. He's not really deciding who's protected from some murder. He's not really deciding that, okay? So again, just as a recap, today we're talking about God's general sovereignty, that he controls everything. We're not talking about election. We've already talked about that three times, and we'll talk about it some more. We're not talking about uh, what about free will, if God controls everything. Jeff's talking about that next week. What we're going to talk about today is general sovereignty and providence, and then how that relates to the problem of evil. You guys ready? You excited? Okay, the room has grown. It will continue to grow. It will continue to grow. All right. Let's read some passages that talk about God's sovereignty. And if you don't see God as being this powerful, let this transform the way you view God, and it will transform your life. This is a big, big thing of what it means for God to be God, okay? Let's talk about God's passages that talk about God's sovereignty generally, okay? Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works. Give me the next word there. All things. Here's what's really interesting. In Greek, the phrase all things means all things. That's what it means, okay? It's a direct translation here. All things according to what? The counsel of his will, okay? So right here in Ephesians, we're told that God works out all things. Everything that's a thing, God works out according to the counsel of his will. Everything is planned by God no matter how small, okay? Psalm 135.6, I like this one. Let me read it to you. Whatever the, Lord does, uh, sorry, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So notice that there is never a time where God doesn't do what he pleases. God does what he pleases all the time with all his creation, okay? Psalm 115.3 says something similar. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is never thwarted. God is never up in heaven wringing his hands together, worried or frustrated that things didn't go according to his plan, Okay? He does all that he pleases. 
Now look at this next one. This next one's really harsh. I'm sure you have this verse crocheted on a pillow somewhere in your house. I'm sure you have it on a Christian t-shirt that you wear to the gym. Let me just read it to you and let it just wash over your soul. It's very aggressive. Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here's what this text is just saying. Compared to God, nobody gets a say. Nobody gets to be like, God, I don't think you should have done it that way. He's like, I'm sorry. You remember when you were dirt and I made you and you didn't exist? That's the conversation that happens, okay? You see this in the book of Job. Job goes up to God and he's like, God, why could you tell me why you did this? I've been innocent. Answer me. And God shows up to Job's why answer with a who question. And he says things like this. Uh, why don't you put on your man pants before you talk to me? And two... Do you tell the rain where to go? Do you tell the snow where to go? Do you set the stars up? Do you hang the earth on nothing? You and I are not equals. We don't have this conversation like you're just talking to your boss, okay? So that's what this text is saying, that God is sovereign over things generally. Let's break down that general sovereignty here as well. Let's talk about His sovereignty in preserving things. We have a tendency, and this comes out of the Enlightenment. Does anybody here know what deism is? Somebody give me a good definition of deism. Anybody? You're on the spot. Go for it. Wait, you got it. That's exactly right. So the idea of deism, that's a great, great illustration, that God just kind of creates everything. He kind of just it winds it up like a big clock, and then he steps back, and it just kind of plays itself out like a theater. God just kind of watches it, but it's already, he already made it, and now he's pretty hands-off. That's not the way the Bible presents God's sovereignty. It presents God as maintaining the things that he has created. You have to realize if God removes his hand and just steps back and watches things, everything pops out of existence again. It's not just that he creates everything. He keeps it existing continually, okay? It is a continual thing. Let me give you some passages that talk about God's preservation. Hebrews 1.3. This one's interesting because this one specifically is talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As Jesus is being struck on the cross, it is Jesus who is holding that cross together. It is Jesus who is holding those fists together. It is Jesus who is holding those saliva glands where they can work up spit to spit on him together, okay? He holds all things together by his word of power because Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. Colossians 1.17, again speaking of Christ, and he is before all things. He's eternal. He was never created. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. God doesn't just create everything and then step back. He maintains it existing. He keeps it in existence. He holds it together. Acts 17, 28. When Paul is talking about how you don't serve God, God's in control of everything. He provides for you. It's not as though you go do something for God because he needs you. One of the things he says is that, for in him we live and move and have our being. Okay? God is the standard of existence. He necessarily exists. None of us had to exist. God made us exist, and he keeps us existing. In him, we live and move and have our being. Job 34, 14 through 15, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. If God takes back his spirit, if he stops preserving, if he removes that life from you, you turn back into dust. Okay, That's what this text is saying. So it's important. We have a tendency just to think that, okay, God made everything, but we don't realize that he continues to keep it, that he holds it together, that he makes sure things work the way that they're supposed to work, but it's a continual process, okay? This next one, this is spicy and politically, so this will be fun. 
Is God sovereign biblically over the affairs of nations? Yes, he is. Including, like we just said, who is elected president. That doesn't mean God likes the president. Does not mean he affirms what a president does. Whether you're Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. This case is true for both. What it does mean, though, is God is sovereign over who's in office, but he will hold those leaders to account if they make bad decisions. But let me give you some passages. Job 12, 23. He makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations, and he leads them away. Okay, so this text is saying if you're a great nation or destruction comes to your nation, it's because God is sovereign. He's controlling those things. It's not just because you didn't have a good economic plan or just because you you did whatever. It's because God is doing something. God is doing something. Isaiah 10, 5 through 10. Now, this one's interesting. This is where God is going to talk about how he uses a pagan nation, Assyria, okay? Assyria is pagan. They sacrifice their kids to false gods. They murder and conquer a bunch of people. They are an evil pagan nation, and God will say he even uses them in his sovereignty. Look at this passage, Isaiah 10, 5 through 10. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in uh, in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few, for he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? These are great cities. They're saying our little cities in Assyria are like these great cities. That's what they're saying by that. Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached out to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Here's what this text is saying. Assyria is just pagan. They're evil. They want to conquer nations in their pride. Okay? By the way, how can it be the case, Jeff will talk about this next week, that God will something that humans also will? You see an example of it here in this passage. Assyria is just proud and pagan. They want to conquer other nations. So they just think, we're great. Our cities are awesome. All right? Our, uh, you know, our Denton, Texas is like Paris, you know, or like Rome or something. That's what they're saying. They're saying, we're so great, we're going to conquer these nations. So they want to conquer these nations. What God is saying is, though you're wanting to do that, I'm also wanting you to do that. Because though you're pagan, I'm going to use you to hit my enemies. That's what God's saying in this passage. Can God use an evil nation to rebuke another evil nation? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. To quote Tommy Nelson, he can give a straight lick with a crooked stick, okay? Romans 13, 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword. That's a reference to death, capital punishment, military activity, etc., bearing the sword. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, let me just be very clear. This, this doesn't mean that you're not allowed to critique presidential policies. You are. We're to be thinking Christians. We don't just accept things blindly. This doesn't mean that you have to like whoever's in office, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever. Uh, This doesn't mean that God will not judge them for their bad decisions. God will absolutely hold them to a higher account, and the judgment for them will be more strict and more severe. What it means, though, is that God is still sovereign over whatever's going on in whatever nation you live. You can disagree with authorities, but there's also a sense in which you must still submit to those authorities as long as they're not asking you to sin, okay? Now, this is tough. Regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, 
the, the presidency will constantly change, all right, over the next several decades, whatever. You'll see it back and forth. You've got to remember this when the person you don't like is there. You have to remember my job is to pray for them, to be respectful. I can disagree. I can vote for somebody else. I can talk about it because we, we, our politics and our theology are combined, right? We have to have a full Christian worldview. But what you can't do is just have hate and slander and these kind of things. If you don't like somebody, pray for them because they need Christ, okay? Seemingly small or random events, okay? If you're a uh, uh, seemingly small or random events, there's a tendency for us sometimes when we talk about God's sovereignty to think that God is generally sovereign, but not down to the details. So here's an example that I've heard before of God's sovereignty, which is a horrendous example. They said, it's like you're in a backyard, and uh, your dad says, you've got to stay in the backyard, but you can go anywhere in the backyard, right? So here are the boundaries, but you then can just pick all these other things. That makes no sense with God's sovereignty. God's not saying, I generally know what's happening in your life, but you've got to really pick all the details. It is, it is, I mean, it is down to the minuscule detail that God ordains things. There's nothing that God has not ordained. There's nothing that he has not known. He ordains all things according to the counsel of his will. He only does what pleases him, okay? Let me give you some uh, passages that see, talk about seemingly small or random events. Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Okay? So Jesus is saying, here are these worthless birds. Yes, I said that. I'm sorry, Peter. Here are these worthless birds. When one falls to the ground, it does so because God has ordained that. That's not a random event. When even a little sparrow dies, that's not a random event. How much more, by the way, does God care for you? That's the point he's going to make. Okay? How much more does God care for you? But it means if you say, wait, are you telling me that God ordained that I would lose this job or God ordained this thing? Well, if he ordains the worthless bird falling out of the sky, then yes, absolutely he did. Okay? Let me give you one that's even stronger. <clears throat> Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Okay? Let's talk about what that means. Casting lots. That's not something we do today. Casting lots in the ancient world was like drawing for straws or rolling a a rolling dice or a die, okay? That's what it was like in the ancient world. It was a random event. So if you were trying to figure out in ancient Israel what God wanted, you would draw for different colored stones or something like this. It's kind of a, a, an ancient equivalent of drawing for the short straw. Everybody know what that is? Somebody has to do the bad job. Who's going to take out all the trash or whatever? And you take a bunch of straws and you cut one of them short, but you hold them all at the same level and you make everybody pick. And whoever draws the short, short straw, man, they've got to take out the trash or whatever it is. What this text is saying is even the most random decisions are ordained by God, okay? Even the most random decisions are ordained by God. There is no such thing in God's mind as chance like that. When you roll a die, it lands on the number God from an eternity past has already determined it would land on. Do you believe that type of sovereignty with God? Or do you believe he's surprised when a number comes up and he's like, snake eyes? Oh, man, Michael, I didn't see that coming. No, all right? He's sovereign even over the small stuff. Which, by the way, this is one of the reasons in the Bible that superstition is sinful. All right, did you know that it is sinful to be superstitious? Okay, what the Bible would call irreverent, silly myths and things like that. It's talking about superstition. You know why? Because nothing controls things other than God. I, there, are, there are, and this has always just intrigued me, there are superstitious atheists, which has never made sense to me. I'm like, wait a second, you don't believe in God, but if you walk under a ladder, you think that there's some being out there that remembers that you walked under a ladder and is going to ruin your life because of that. That is ridiculous, okay? There's not a, like a ladder demon ready to get you if you spill the salt or break a mirror. Nothing happens. Watch this, ready? I've never broken a bone. I didn't knock on any wood. You know why? Because God is sovereign. Now, if I break a bone today, it's not because I didn't knock on wood. 
It's because God is playing a hilarious joke. Okay? <clears throat> but the point being is that superstition doesn't control things. God controls things. There's, so be freed from those things. If you feel like, oh, man, this must be bad luck because I spilled something. You don't have to walk in that as a Christian. God controls everything, not some sort of other being that controls your whole life because you spill stuff, okay? It's just God. Uh, this is the same way. Sometimes we can do this in Christianity with saying certain prayers and little mantras. We have this tendency to act like I need to say all the right words, and I need to pray for my house every time I leave or else it's going to catch on fire, and, and it becomes it's like a time of Christian superstition. If you're just repeating mantras so that you'll be protected, you forget that you don't have to repeat words like the pagan, but rather God loves you. If you want to hang a cross on your little, uh, you know, rearview mirror in your car, totally fine. If you think doing that somehow protects you like a magical charm, that is superstition, okay? That is superstition. Additionally, <clears throat> let's do this one more uh, little series here. Uh, seemingly smaller random events. Nope, we already did that. The lives and wills of men and women. Is God even sovereign over the lives and wills of men and women? How does that work? How are we accountable for our sins if God ordains everything? You got to come back next Sunday. The Reverend Dr. Jeff Ashley will be here to walk you through that. Today, I just have the easy topic of things like, I don't know, evil, okay? The lives and wills of men and women. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, okay? So you think that somebody's just making their own decision, and God is saying, even a guy that makes a bunch of decisions, the king, his decisions are turned by God. His decisions are turned by God. I actually have a uh, friend <clears throat> whose uh, son recently got in trouble with the law, and uh, he just got a ton of people to just pray for the judge and pray for the whole hearing and all this kind of stuff. It was really something that his son should have gotten in trouble for. And uh, in the middle of the hearing, the judge just goes, you know what? Or it was his probation officer or somebody, and they just said in the middle, he goes, I don't, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I'm not going to press charges on this because of this, just in the middle of it. And we're like, we know why, because the king's heart is turned like water in the hands of God, Okay. Psalm 139.16, this is important. This says of God, talking about his people. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every single one of your days, good and bad, has been ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. Okay? You do not have a day, according to this, that is not in his, quote, book. Okay? That is not in his book. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of, a man, uh, of man plans his way, but who establishes his steps? The Lord establishes his steps, okay? God establishes his steps. Now, this one's more difficult for us, and that's why we're going to spend a whole section next time talking about how can God ordain everything and us still make real willing decisions, okay? So make sure, again, I can't promote that enough. Come back next week, and don't freak out in the meantime, Okay. Now let's talk about God's sovereignty over evil. So are we good saying that we believe that the Bible affirms that God's generally sovereign, he preserves things, he ordains events, he controls who's in charge in government, uh, all these kind of things we went over. Everybody good with that? Everybody at least agree that the Bible teaches that whether you like it or not. Good with that? Okay. Now let's get into some things that the Bible also teaches that you may not like, but you, some of you might find this to be a comfort. Let's talk about God being sovereign over evil. Let's talk about some passages that talk about him being over evil in general, and then we'll talk about him being sovereign over <clears throat> uh, the devil and demons. Deuteronomy 32, 39. This is God, and here's what he says. See now that I, even I, I am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Notice that God is not just the one who brings healing. 
He's not just the one who brings life. He also brings cutting down. He also brings death. He also brings wounding. God does that, okay? I don't know what the prosperity gospel preachers do with that. God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. Well, unless he wants to wound you, unless he wants to kill you, right? Isaiah 45, 5 through 7 says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Again, we are monotheist. We believe in a trinity. We do not believe in multiple gods. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the, uh, I'm sorry, from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Look at this next part. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. In Hebrew, it's the word raw. It's just the word for evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. Exodus 4.11. This is where God is going to send off Moses to go to the people of Egypt. By the way, how old is Moses when God calls him? 80, right? Be encouraged. If you say, man, I've lived a lot of years for Christ. I, I just need to, I, 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 there's nothing else God can use me for. Well, he might use you to deliver a whole nation, okay? So be encouraged in that. But he's 80, and his excuse to God is, I don't talk good. That's basically what he says, all right? That's kind of a paraphrase. But he says, I can't deliver these people. I don't talk good. I get nervous. I stutter, right? And here's what God says to him. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? If somebody is mute or deaf or seen or blind, somebody has some sort of physical deformity, the Bible says God directly has done that. Genesis 50-20. This is where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and ends up in prison and all these bad things happen to him. And here's what he says about it. Genesis 50-20. As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You planned to do evil towards me, but God planned to use your evil to keep a bunch of people alive. Okay? Can God use evil for a good purpose? Yes, he can. In fact, I think that's the only way he uses evil. It's for a good purpose, ultimately. Now, let's talk about the devil and demons. Is God sovereign over the devil and demons? Again, more demon stuff. I don't know what the deal is. Next week, no demons, Jeff. All right, next week. Job 1.12. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hands. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here, God is giving the devil permission to torment Job. Notice he has to have permission. That's interesting. For being a big rebel, he seems to have to ask a lot of, can I do this in the Bible? Okay? But notice that God gives him permission. Yes, you can do that. Don't kill Job, though. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Look at this one. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. God has given Saul his spirit, which in the Old Testament usually has the idea of equipping somebody to rule or to do some tasks. Don't think of it like modern day. God's not going to take his Holy Spirit from you as a Christian. That's a different topic than what's going on here. What God is doing is he's saying, I'm no longer blessing you to be the king over my people, and instead he lets a harmful spirit attack Saul, okay? A demon. You're telling me that God is sovereign even over who gets attacked by demons? Yes. 1 Kings 22:23. Now therefore behold... The Lord has put a lying spirit. Who put a lying spirit? Yeah, oh, that's right. He's put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. God is the one sovereign over whether or not these false prophets prophesy false things. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, this is what Paul's talking about that he has seen, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Look at what the thorn is, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's not because Paul was conceited, this is not a punishment from God, but to keep the Apostle Paul dependent on God, to keep the Apostle Paul from becoming conceited, God allows some sort of demonic something to somehow bother Paul. We don't know if it's a sickness, we don't know if it's oppression, like spiritually, psychologically, we don't know what it is, but somehow this messenger of Satan is allowed to torment Paul. Why? Because it makes Paul dependent on God. When do you pray the hardest? When everything is perfect? or when you are on the brink of disaster. What it does is it makes you trust in God. Listen, if you think that you need to grow and somehow just be a strong Christian in your own strength and not have any more struggles or anything like that, what the Bible's gonna say is that that's not real strength. Real strength is trusting in Christ. You are your strongest when you're your weakest because when you're your weakest, that's when you need God the most, okay? That's when you need God the most. 2 Samuel 24.1 compared with 1 Chronicles 21.1. We're not going to look at these passages, but here's what's going on. These are two separate accounts of when King David numbered Israel in his pride and was judged by God for it. One of the passages says that God ordained that and caused David to do it. The other one says that Satan did it. How can these parallel accounts both be true? Well, the answer is God is using the devil to accomplish God's good purposes. To accomplish God's good purposes. Now, Okay, so uh, those are tough. Those are tricky. What do we do with all that? Let me just give you a bunch of thoughts, okay? First of all, though, everybody take a a deep breath. It's good. It's rainy. It's not rainy. It's clearing up. The skies are going to, the sun's going to pop through at any moment, all right? We're going to have a picnic. Everything's good. Don't freak out about evil. Let's talk a little bit about evil and some clarifications about God and evil. Let me give you a few of these. Number one, though God ordains evil, and is sovereign over evil, God himself is not evil, and he does not do evil. Let me say that again. Though God ordains evil and is sovereign over evil, he's in control, he, God himself is not evil, and he does not do evil. You'll notice when evil is done, it is always done through some type of secondary agent, whether it is an angel who rebels or a human who rebels or the earth that's become cursed or whatever it is, uh, God himself does not directly do evil, Okay. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, okay? So you don't need to be thinking, okay, if God is sovereign over good and he's sovereign over evil, he's sovereign over both of those in the same way. He's not. He stands behind one of them differently than he stands behind the other one. He is sovereign over both, but you don't need to then think, oh, God must then be 50% good and 50% evil. No, God is light and in him is no darkness at all, okay? He's perfect. I'll give you some more passages. Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. Again, God does not do evil. He is not evil. He does not be anti-God. He does not sin. All right? Psalm 119.68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Okay? James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So notice, though God's sovereign over good and evil, if you start to think that God is evil or you start to think that God does evil, then what you've done is you've gone beyond the bounds of Scripture. 
Again, we are never allowed, just because we don't understand something, to reject something the Bible clearly says. We don't understand how there can only be one God, but somehow that one God is three distinct persons at the same time. But we're not allowed to reject one of those because the Bible teaches both of those. We don't understand how God is sovereign even over the wills of men, yet we are still judged for the decisions we make. But just because we don't understand how those fit together, we are not allowed to reject one of those things. In the same way, the Bible is clear that God is sovereign even over evil and that God is good and He is not evil. Just because we don't understand how that goes together, we are not allowed to reject one of those things. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Number two, this is important. God always uses evil for an ultimate good. God always uses evil for an ultimate good, whether it is his glory, whether it is saving somebody, whatever it might be. God uses the Apostle Paul being a persecutor of Christians to bring him to faith and salvation. God uses these bad things, but he always uses them for a good purpose. That's different than how the devil uses bad things. The devil uses bad things with a bad end in mind. God uses bad things with a good end in mind. Let me ask you this question. What is the difference between child abuse and disciplining your child? What is the difference? This is an important question. Who has a thought? Intention. The difference between uh, child abuse and discipline is simply this. Are you hurting the child for their good, or are you hurting the child for their bad? Also, the level to which you hurt them, all right? And so, that's very important. To, to, to take a child and say, I love you, I'm going to give you a little bit of pain now, but it's going to keep you out of prison later, is loving and kind and gracious, Okay? That's discipline. With abuse, you're just hurting the kid for the kid's bad, for no purpose, because you're drunk and mean or whatever is going on in your family, and that's why that's going on. Those are different. Okay? Also, with abuse, the, 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 the pain is way more severe and not appropriate to whatever crime they've committed. But the big difference is intention. It's intention. Okay? That's really, really important. Uh, <clears throat> I hate. Let me tell you one of the things I most hate as a parent, taking my kids to get shots. Okay? I hate taking them to get shots. Isla, she doesn't know. She's there, she's cooing, she's having fun, and then and she freaks out because she feels pain in her leg, okay? Judah knows. He's like, oh, the doctor, we're having so much fun, we're laughing. I set him up on the counter, and he looks at me, and he goes, and he knows. And so I'm holding down his little arms, and he's looking at me like, you have betrayed me, Father. That's what he's doing, okay? Why am I allowing him to get that shot? Because I don't want him to die of polio, all right? I'm allowing him to go through a little bit of pain to keep him from something much worse later. That's what discipline is. You allow your child to be, have experience a little bit of pain to possibly save their soul. Whatever your spanking feels like, it does not feel like hell. It does not feel like going to prison the rest of your life. Okay? That is different than abuse, which is for where it's for the child's bad and it's not commiserate. Commi- commiserate. It's not equal to whatever thing that they've sinned in. Okay, so keep that in mind. When God uses evil, he does it with a good purpose. God works all things to the good of those that love him, all things. What about this bad thing that happened in my life? God is somehow working it to the good of those who love him. Okay? <clears throat> Let me give you a, a quote here by D.A. Carson. I really like D.A. Carson. He's a New Testament scholar. Uh, I like that he reads 500 books a year. There are 365 days in a year. All right? He's better. He's better. He's better than all of us. Okay? All right, but he's brilliant. Okay, here's what he says. To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty. Look at this next part. Yet, the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents, to secondary causes. 
On the other hand, God stands behind good in such a way that it not only takes place within the bounds of his sovereignty, but it is always chargeable to him and only derivatively to secondary agents. Here's what Carson is saying. When God ordains evil, though he ordains it, it's done by, it it doesn't flow out of his nature, he's good. It's done by secondary agents, humans that do bad things, demons that do bad things, etc. But when we talk about God doing something good, that flows directly from his nature and only secondary by agent. When we do something good, it's only because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's only secondarily done by these agents, okay? So I think that is a helpful way to think about that. Number three, God hates our sin. He never wants us to sin and we are to blame for our sin. God hates our sin. He never wants us to sin, and we are to blame for our sin. Isaiah 66, 3-4, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. This is talking about people doing religious rituals and their hearts not for God. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. What he's saying here is these people that are doing religious rituals whose hearts are far from God and walking in sin, I've called to them. I've, I've said, come back to me. And instead, they've chosen what is evil. You see here that God hates these things. He says his heart does not delight in them. Romans 9, 19. Uh, Jeff will talk about this uh, some. We'll talk about this more in Romans when we get to the book of Romans. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Here's what's going on in, in Romans 9. They're bringing up the question to Paul. If God ordains everything, how can he hold me accountable for my sin? Okay? Paul's answer is not to give you an answer. It's to say, the clay doesn't get to talk back to the potter. God ordains these things, and he's not going to tell you why. He's going to tell you who he is, though and why he is beyond your attempts to question him on it. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Notice that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. There's a sense in which when God ordains something that's good, it delights him. There's almost a sense of like a holy sobriety, though, when he ordains something bad. Yes, he ordained that that evil person should die, but there's a sense in which it's almost like he wishes it could have been different. Now, not obviously and not literally in his sovereignty, that wouldn't make any sense, but you need to realize that God does not stand behind good and evil in the same way. He equally is sovereign over both, but as far as his character, he stands behind those things in different ways. Here's an example that uh, John Calvin gives. If you have a dead body, if you don't know who John Calvin is, he's the greatest theologian of the Reformation. He is fantastic. Anyway, if you have a dead body and the sun is shining on that dead body, there's a sense in which you could say the sun is causing that dead body to stink. But is it really the sun that the stink comes from or is it the dead body? It's the dead body. That's how God is. God is just shining like the sun. And yes, there's a sense in which you could say it causes the body to stink, but the stink is in the dead body. It's not in the sunshine. It's not in the light. And so God is standing behind good and evil in a different way. Now, last 10 minutes, let's tackle the problem of evil, okay? This is what is called a theodicy. Here's, here's the problem as I want to pose it. If God is sovereign and God is good, why is there evil? It seems to be the case that if there's evil... 
he either couldn't prevent it, and then he's not all sovereign, or he could prevent it and he doesn't want to, so he's not actually all good. He wanted there to be evil. So what do we do with that? Here's the term. I've got it. I'll write it up here. Theodicy, okay? comes from two Greek words, theos, which means God, and dike, which means justice. It has to do with defending God for this charge of there being evil in the world, okay? Let me give you a quote from David Hume. There's a lot of people that have pitched the question this way. If you don't know who David Hume is, he was this uh, kind of uh, turn of the enlightenment, brilliant philosopher. He's Scottish. He is a ton of fun to read, but his philosophy is basically the devil. Okay, but here's what he says. Is God willing to prevent evil but not evil? then he is not omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Okay? So let me give you some Christian responses to the problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world if God is good and loving? Let me give you a few Christian responses. Here's the first one. Without God, you cannot even say that evil exists. You can only say that things happen that society doesn't like. Let me say it another way. The Christian has to figure out how to defend God from the charge of evil. The atheist has to figure out how to even think that there's evil in the world at all. Now, let me just be clear. That's huge. If you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in God because there's evil in the world, they cannot admit that there's actual evil in the world. They can only admit that things happen that people don't like. It's not actually evil. So think of the shooting in Las Vegas that happened recently. That's just one biological meat machine killing other biological meat machines. There's no afterlife. There's no soul. Nothing evil has happened. Now, society will say that it's evil, but that's just societal opinion. There's not actual evil. There's just people's opinion. And as long as you can change enough people's opinion, like in Germany in the 1940s, then you can do all kinds of evil things because there's no standard. If there's no standard of good, there is no standard of evil. Evil for them is just they're saying that they don't like it. Right? Why don't you believe in God? Well, my grandma died when I was six, and it made me mad at God. Okay, so you're saying that it was bad that your grandma died? If you're saying it's bad that your grandma died, what do you mean by bad? You mean it's just your opinion, or you mean it's actually something's broken in the world? Because if it's just your opinion, I would actually say your grandma dying from your evolutionary worldview would be good. It's just survival of the fittest. Let's get rid of the old, get rid of the sick, get rid of the weak. Who cares about any of that? If you want to be consistent with your worldview. So the first thing we need to realize is we don't have to play defense on this issue. We can also play offense on this issue. We have to defend how there can be evil in the world if God is good. The atheist cannot say there's evil. They can only say there are random things that happen that people generally agree they don't like. They say it's bad, but it's not based on anything. It doesn't go beyond human opinion. Does that make sense? This is huge. If I I cut in front of somebody in line at the bank, and they say, excuse me, sir, you cut in front of me. And I say, yeah, I cut in front of you. They say, well, you shouldn't do that. Well, I, I think you should do that. Well, a bunch of other people think that you shouldn't do that. Well, what makes them right? Nothing! Everything's just opinion at that point, okay? And so you have to realize this is huge. If you don't have a theistic worldview, you can only say there are things society doesn't like. You cannot say there is actual evil. You have to say that the Holocaust was simply a bunch of people making decisions that we all agree today are probably pretty bad decisions. We don't know why they're bad. We just think it's bad to kill a bunch of people. Why? Why is it bad to kill a bunch of people if there's no standard of good or evil? We all know that that sounds crazy, but why is that? The Bible would say it's because written on the hearts of mankind is something more than just opinion. That even if you don't have a Bible, you know when you do certain things that you've done what's wrong. Okay? Number two, 
The Bible places the blame for evil in the world that we experience as a result of human sin, okay? What we don't want to do is we don't want to forget our part in this. We have a tendency to do that. If God is good, then why is there evil in the world? Maybe because we turned our back on him and cursed him and left. If he says, I'm the source of all good, and I'm the source of all joy, and I'm the source of all light, and we say, no, I think I'll take this stuff instead. Oh, wait, I'm getting further and further away from good and light and, and happy things. That's why. Notice, if you say, well, Zach, if there's, why, why are there earthquakes? Why are there fires in California? Why, is there, uh, you know, why is there the flood, uh, the, all the flooding that happened in Houston? Why do people murder each other and all these things? According to the Bible, it's because we rejected God, and so he said, you don't want me? Fine. You can be left to your own devices, and this is the result of this. We will not save ourselves, okay? We are the problem that got us into this mess. We are not the solution. Number three, this one is huge in understanding the personality and character of God. God sent Christ to get rid of the evil in the world because he loves us. The same evil that you hate to see when you see people get murdered, when you see uh, you know, storms kill people, when you hear that people get raped or whatever it is, that same hatred that you have, God has that hatred. And he loves us so much that he would send Christ to take our sin, to take our punishment for messing up the world to begin with in the first place, so that he might save us because he loves us. God doesn't watch a hurricane neutrally. In the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more hurricanes like that, okay, that somehow harm people and kill people and these kind of things. God sent Christ to get rid of evil in the world because he loves us. If God is the problem of why there's evil in the world, he is the solution for how he's vanquished evil, okay? Number four, God uses evil for an ultimately good purpose. This is what most people just can't get beyond. They just assume that if something bad is happening, that must be the end of the story. To say it another way, if God is big enough to allow for evil, then he's big enough to have a reason for why he allowed it. Why we get stuck is we don't necessarily know what that reason is. We see the bad. We see the evil. We don't see God's end game. We don't see that end plan, right? Because God wants us to trust him. Why doesn't God come to Job in the book of Job and say, oh, hey, Job, by the way, I'm going to give you all your stuff back, and I'm doing this because I've got this bet going on with the devil, and the book that's being written about you is going to encourage millions from here on out in world history. Then Job would be like, oh, okay, I understand now. I don't have to trust you because I can trust the results. God often won't give you the results because he doesn't want you to trust the results. He wants you to trust him as a person, or rather a trinity of persons, okay? This, by the way, is just a little key for whatever you're struggling with. If you have any fears, any worries, any anxieties, any negative health diagnoses, whatever it is, you feel like if I just had an answer, then I'd be able to rest. And God is saying, I'm not giving you the answer because I don't want you to rest in the answer. I want you to rest in me. Okay? Number five. Let me give you some, one version that some Christians hold uh, that's very popular. I disagree with this, but I want to give it to you just for completeness sake. Okay? What some Christians hold is what is called the free will defense for why God ordained evil. Here's what they'll say. If God wanted to make humans that really could love him, that really could obey and follow him, he had to allow us to have free will. And if he's going to allow us to have free will, the possibility of falling has to be real. The possibility of rebelling against him has to be real. So what some theologians will say is that if God really wants us to love him and follow him, he can't just make a bunch of robots that don't have another choice. What he does is he creates Adam and Eve with a choice. And if he's going to create them with a choice, then the possibility for them to reject God and for mankind to fall has to be a real possibility. Okay? I don't hold this view. I don't think it fits within God's sovereignty. But the reason I mention it is it is a defense for why there could be evil in the world. 
If God says, hey, I'm going to create everything good, but I'm going to allow humans to really choose whether or not they're going to follow me with Adam and Eve that aren't born with a sinful nature, then if that's the case, then the possibility that they could, dis- they could uh, reject me is a real possibility. And so what, what, the, what this defense says is that God couldn't have made a world in which evil was never a possibility or else humans would just be puppets. We would just be robots. We would just be like pawns, okay? I don't hold this view. I don't think it's biblical. It is very popular in church history, and it does actually give an account for why there's evil in the world. So it's not a bad argument. I just don't think it takes into account God's meticulous sovereignty. Let me give you the reason why I think there is evil in the world, okay? This comes from a guy named St. Augustine. Who's St. Augustine? Who remembers? Aurelius Augustinus of Hippo. Who is he? He is the most influential figure in all of church history outside of the Bible, okay? Lives around the 400s. Uh, Protestants quote him. Catholics quote him. He comes with all kinds of brilliant philosophical things. He writes one of the most definitive works on the Trinity. He defends grace against workspace salvation and fighting a guy named Pelagius. He's a big deal. He has many leather-bound books. His office smells of rich mahogany, all right? He's a big deal. He's a really big deal. This solution goes back to Augustine. Here's what Augustine says. It's not as though God created evil or else God would be evil, okay? Evil is not something God created. It's a lack of something. It's rejecting God. Let me give you an example. Coldness is not really a thing. It's the absence of heat, right? Does that make sense? Darkness is not really a thing. It's the absence of light. Everybody with me on that? Would you say to somebody something like this, hey, hand me a bag of darkness? Maybe if you were a warlock playing Dungeons and Dragons or something, okay? It'd be like bad spells or something. I guess that's what a bag of darkness is. No, you wouldn't say hand me a bag of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. You with me? Coldness is not a thing. Darkness is not a thing. Evil is the absence of good. It's not a thing. It's not a substance. It's not like God makes a mountain and he makes a cheetah and he makes a palm tree and he makes a clump of evil. Okay? doesn't work that way. What God does is he makes everything good, and what we call evil is when somebody chooses less than God. When, if God, God is good and he creates everything good. When we walk away from that, that is what evil is. Evil is a privation of good. It's not a substance itself. Okay? I'll give you another example. Evil is kind of like a hole in a shirt where there shouldn't be a hole. Okay? Now, there should be holes in a shirt in some places for your head and arms and these kind of things. Creatures are not as good as God. But if there's just a hole in a shirt, is that hole something or is it absence of shirt? If I say, hand me a barrel filled with just holes from shirts but no shirt, what will be in that barrel? Nothing, okay? So the reason this is really wise, and I think this is the right answer, is that if God is good and he creates everything good, he doesn't just make a clump of stuff called evil. Evil is when mankind rejects the goodness that is God. It's choosing less than God. That's what it is, okay? So God even creates the devil originally good as an angel, so that's, where he, that's how he exists. And then when he rejects God, it, it becomes tainted and twisted. He's less glorious than he should have been. He's less obedient than he should be, etc. okay? So the idea, though, is that evil is not a substance. It is a privation, It is getting rid of a substance. God creates everything good. He does create mankind, and mankind rejects God and chooses what is not God, and that we call evil. Okay? That we call evil. Okay. Why did God allow evil? Let me give you this one quick thing. Though we're out of time, let me just in one sentence explain why I think God ordained evil. Let me tell you uh, why I don't think it's the reason, and then I'll tell you what I think the reason is. 
Here's what I used to think about evil. I used to think that the reason God ordained and allowed evil to happen in the world is because it better showed his glory. I used to think that, right? If you're making a tapestry and you have these bright purples and blues and yellows, you don't put that on a white background. You put it on a black background so it will pop, so you can see it, okay? I did this one time. I was uh, sitting at Chili's uh, with some friends, and one of their kids, while we were eating chips, said, why'd God allow evil? I was like, who is this kid that asks such questions? You know, he, he was 12. We were in the temple. Uh, so we're sitting there at Chili's, and I say, well, let me show you. I said, do you see this light on my phone? It's not that bright, okay? Now, though, let's go underneath the table. And it was dark. So we went under the table, and I shined it. I said, do you see how this light shines brighter? That's why God allowed evil. Ugh. And I thought that was such a good explanation at the time. And then later, it occurred to me, if that's why God allows evil, then God needs evil to be glorious. You can't say that the reason God allowed evil was because it better showed his glory. Because then what you're saying is God needs evil to really be as good as he is. Why couldn't he create a world where you just see his glory as it is? So here's now the answer that I have. Ready? It's, it's a frustrating answer. It's not a good answer. But it's the only answer we get biblically. Somehow God decided that he would get more glory by allowing mankind to fall and redeeming us instead of just leaving us redeemed to begin with. Let me say that again. Somehow God decided that he would get more glory by allowing us to fall and redeeming us instead of just leaving us redeemed. I don't know why. Maybe it's because God's able to display both his justice in damning people and his grace in saving people, whereas if everyone was saved, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. Maybe, I don't know. All I know biblically is God does what is best for his own glory, and somehow he decided that he would rather have a world fall and to redeem us because he loves us, show us his grace in Christ, than to just leave us redeemed. That's as far as the question goes for me. I don't think the Bible pushes it beyond that, okay? So, with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll be done. And I'll hang out up here for, for questions. Remember to get your kids, if you've got kids in there, before mingling. But then, please, mingle, mingle about. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would uh, just be with us as we go into service, that you would encourage us, that you would be with everybody here. I pray for anybody struggling uh, with some sort of disaster, some sort of disease, some sort of frustration, some sort of conflict, whatever they're going through, I pray that because you're sovereign over these things, that that actually gives us hope. That if I find out that my wife is killed today in a car wreck, it's not because of just some random drunk crossed over double white lines or something like that, double yellow lines. It's because you're sovereign. That doesn't take away the hurt, but it gives us hope in the hurt because it means that you Behind a frowning providence stands a smiling face. And so I pray that you would encourage us, that you would be with us, that you would forgive us uh, for the times we've not viewed you rightly biblically. I just confess that a lot of times I believe that this is true about you, sovereignty, but I don't live my life that way. And so I thank you for this time. I pray that you would bless the people here. It's in Christ's name alone that I pray. Amen.